Good day, and welcome to the 5G Huawei Brawl. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Mr. Ethan Lacey. Please go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Ethan Lacey, and I do TMT Specialty Sales at New Street. I want to thank you for joining us today for our call 5G and the Huawei Brawl. The impact on the global tech supply chain has widened since the U.S. decided to, to ban the sale of U.S. parts, semiconductors, and software to Huawei. The purpose of the call will to be a whole, take a holistic view on global 5G developments from this fallout, as well as derivative implications for tech and Chinese telcos. This is an area New Street is uniquely positioned to address, given our global TMT coverage. From New Street, we have on the call Andrew Antwistle, our 5G network technologist, Pierre Fergu, our technology infrastructure analyst, and Chris Hoare, our Chinese telco analyst. The format will be a brief overview from each speaker, followed by Q&A. And as always, the more interactive, the better. Call slides were sent with the invite, but please email if you don't have them to ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. Also, feel free to send any questions you might have for the call as well. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Andrew. Andrew? Thank you very much, Ethan. So I'm just going to run through uh, three slides that I've pulled out of uh, the note that we published yesterday. And hopefully that will set the scene. Also prompt some questions as well. The the first slide that um, I've picked to go with is just summarizing five markets around the world where we see 5G CapEx coming down the pipe and summarizing what, uh, what's going on in each of those. But there's a very common thread uh, running across them, which is the uh, dominance of political issues over and above uh, operating issues in telecoms. So 5G was never going to be a clean game, uh, but the pace at which politics and spin have already marginalized actual telecoms concerns has really been quite astonishing. The main reason for that is that the term 5G has become an umbrella term for everything that's good about potential future tech. It's become a crisp shorthand for all progress in tech, innovation, productivity, economic, and social progress. In the hands of politicians who know little about technology and really next to nothing about wireless networks, it really has become detached from any operational reality in the telecoms world. Now, this dynamic in the U.S., in China, in South Korea, and to a lesser degree in Europe has become something of a vicious circle. The the, the more important 5G appears to be to your global rivals, the more important it must be, uh, and the more vital it must be to keep up with those global rivals. In the U.S., this goal of keeping up in 5G has led to some really quite remarkable developments. Uh, I'll just pick three of them. So... The public split between the FCC and the Department of Justice on the Sprint T-Mobile merger, uh, you know, as we've written about over recent times, is absolutely unprecedented. Uh, and that split is rooted in the anxiety not to be left behind in the U.S. in 5G, a very strong anxiety in certain quarters. Uh, but for that to have triggered a, uh, a major breach in the, the normal protocols of merger review is, is, in our view, quite remarkable. The, the second is the concern about the threat from Huawei to U.S. interests, uh, which is rooted absolutely, in our view, in an inflated perception of the importance of 5G. The third that I would pick on is the acceptability of handing tens of billions of dollars, potentially, to foreign satellite companies in order to quit their satellite spectrum and 
make it available for terrestrial 5G use. All of the pressure around that is, is rooted in huge worries about keeping up in global 5G. In China, 5G has taken on similarly mystical importance. So 5G is seen as the cornerstone of almost all technical and economic initiatives ahead in China. And the leading role that China has played to date in the standardization and development of 5G is seen both locally and projected internationally as proof of its rapid progress and current prowess in technology, technology more widely than just uh, wireless technology. The, the trade war with the U.S. and specifically the attacks on ZTE and now on Huawei are serving only to heighten the importance of 5G for the Chinese Communist Party. So we see that as a, as a, growing, a growing sense of its importance rather than something that's sort of plateaued. But I'm not going to run through the other markets on the slide, but suffice to say that 5G has managed to detach itself from objective reality in each of these markets, as in the U.S. and in China, but with some interesting local twists in each, in each location. Mo moving on to my second slide, a very tempting response to the prospect of looking bad in global 5G. Instead of actually fixing the problems, it's tempting to sow confusion about what 5G actually is in the minds of consumers, in the minds of the media, and most specifically in the minds of politicians. So this slide, which I've lifted from the note, tries to show how easily this can be achieved with a range of options from the vaguely defensible muddying of the waters through to much more blatant uh, interventions in, uh, in just essentially relabeling 4G as 5G. Now, it's easy to criticize operators for following this path, but I'm reluctant to do that. Uh, the, the root of the problem that they face is that none of the three leading U.S. operators has the right spectrum in hand to roll out what I've described as ordinary 5G in 2019 or 2020. None of them have the, the time division spectrum in the 2 to 4 gigahertz range, which they would need to do that. Uh, and on that basis, what are they supposed to do? To avoid looking bad, muddying the waters on 5G is a, an entirely understandable uh, and, and probably strategically wise way of doing things, however odd it looks from the outside. And this muddying of the waters will be successful in our view. We think the U.S. can persuade itself that it's actually doing just fine in 5G with plenty of coverage and that anybody who wants to see a 5G icon on their phone uh, will be able to fulfill that wish. Now, my final slide tries to quantify and show in overall terms the 5G capex that we expect around the globe. And we don't expect the UK to be humbled in this global league table, uh, even though we don't expect US 5G capex uh, to deliver a particularly good platform for 5G in the US, even by 2025. Um, so the, the, the charts... Um, on that slide show our expectation that, that China will frankly go crazy on 5G investments over the next several years, uh, racking up close to $200 billion in 5G capex by 2025. And after a much slower start, we expect the U.S. to get to close to $100 billion by the same date, uh, with the rest of the world much, much further back, largely just because the individual markets are smaller but also, in many cases, the, uh, the, the, the pace of shifting capex will be lower. Now, I should, it's important to note that this is our definition of 5G capex. 
And many operators are saying that essentially all of their current CapEx is 5G, even for some of those that haven't actually launched 5G services yet. Now, we explain in the back of the note, I won't go into it now, but we explain in the back of the note how we've approached this split. But I do want people to be conscious of the fact that a number of operators are saying that all the money they're spending today, which we would classify as mostly 4G, uh, they're describing as 5G. I also have to say that very, very little of this early 5G CapEx makes any real sense in telecoms terms, even if it is fulfilling a geopolitical and industrial policy goal. Um, in the note, we look at and explain how Chinese operators who we expect to be spending more than anybody else on 5G have no operational need for that investment at all at this stage. The capacity that 5G uh, will create in their networks over the next few years is absolutely not necessary given the levels of stress in those networks. And 5G CapEx in the US to us only really makes sense if it's directed to exploiting the C-band spectrum, uh, which probably won't be available for use until 2022 or maybe even later, uh, or directed to exploiting Sprint's 2.5 gigahertz spectrum. All of the other CapEx we think on millimeter wave and frequency division spectrum in lower bands is questionable in terms of the platform that's being created going forward. And even with 100 billion of projected 5G CapEx in the US, uh, we don't expect the US to have materially moved the needle on building significantly denser networks by 2025. So that money is going on essentially overlays to the existing network and, and some very, very concentrated millimeter wave deployments which, although they will be dense, won't, as I say, be moving the needle nationally on densification. So, in, in overall summary, the, the 5G world has kind of gone off the rails in recent times. 5G CapEx is being elevated and distorted by politics and by spin. The destiny of Huawei, which is the preeminent global 5G vendor, now hangs on the resolution of a fight between the Chinese Communist Party and the White House. The real purpose of 5G, which is to add affordable capacity to wireless networks over the next decade or so, is now completely buried under a pile of unrelated issues, at least for the foreseeable future. With that, I'll, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Pierre, who's going to address uh, some of the tech angles on this topic. Thanks a lot, uh, Andrew. And I'll move on to uh, slide four, indeed and give you maybe our perspective on 5G. And, uh, and as you know, we, we cover telecom equipment in the value chain. That's really what we, what we look at. The first thing we would say about, um, about 5G is that it's definitely on, and it's going to be significant uh, in the value chain. So, so, so there is definitely a theme for us to, to track over the next five years. So deploying a 5G network, what does that mean in terms of uh, overall network spend? It's a lot of money. Uh, it's dense networks. Uh, it's a lot of technology. It's very, very dense technology with a lot of uh, a lot of silicon. And the reason why 5G is introduced very aggressively, at least as aggressively as 4G, is because it really drives a very significant improvement in the economics of the network. So we went through uh, an exercise with BCG of uh, modeling the rollout uh, of a 5G network versus like a 4G-only network in a, in a given situation, in a given city. And um, the, the rule of thumb is that the 5G network is going to cost half the price of the equivalent uh, 4G network. But of course, it's still going to be more money being spent than what has been spent over uh, the, the 4G networks as we know them today. So this is going to fuel the industry. 
So when you look at 5G spending on a standalone basis, we think it goes from nearly zero in 2000 and uh, in 2018 to nearly $20 billion in 2022. And, and of course, that forecast is uh, actually matching the ramp of 5G very closely to the ramp of 4G. What's driving 5G adoption is the need of more capacity at a more cost-efficient uh, uh, level. Uh, and that's exactly the same, uh, the same as uh, what drove the adoption of 4G between 2010 and 2014. So when you look at what this means for the overall industry, I think our highest conviction here is that 5G is not a new industry. 5G is not a new product. 5G is not a new value proposition. 5G is not a new use case. Maybe we change our mind in five years, we'll see. But today, there is absolutely no credit you can give to that. So that means 5G has to get inserted in today's economic model of mobile operators. And we have like a fairly simple and very generic way to look at the business model of mobile operators. So they all run a very, very similar service in oligopolistic markets. And they are in a situation where they vary their level of investments in, uh, in their networks. And typically what happens is that they increase investments when their pricing power comes under pressure. So they compete more and more on pricing. The technology is maturing. They feel like they have to invest more in their network to improve their value proposition in order to be able to defend pricing. And then once they've regained their pricing power and EBITDA margins have expanded again, what we see is that they peak in CapEx uh, and they start like uh, looking at uh, the opportunities they have to improve free cash flow by lowering CapEx, and we enter in, in the down leg of, of the cycle. And, and we've covered like a full cycle that typically uh, goes over uh, eight years. So that means that peak spending, peak CapEx spending for 5G is probably going to be very similar to peak CapEx. Uh, spending for 4G simply because the economic system, the, like the, the sustainable financing of this capex, is coming from this very cyclical, very cyclical movement in which there is no significant secular growth. Now, at the same time, what we've learned, and uh, for those who've followed our research over the last decade, uh, uh, you know that we've learned it as a painful way. What we've learned uh, over time is that. From one cycle to the next one, from 3G to 4G and from 4G to 5G, what we see is that the percentage of CapEx that goes into equipment is actually decreasing. And so at first sight, you could think that as a network is actually uh, getting more mature, if you roll out 4G over 3G and then 5G over 4G, you should benefit from existing infrastructure and concentrate spending more in the technology to upgrade sites more than in other types of spending like civil work and digging trenches for fiber and infrastructure and cooling and power systems, etc. That's true. But at the same time, as you increase capacity in your networks, you need to increase your fiber density. You rule out more smaller sites that are very, very costly in non-equipment spending and very, very uh, cost-efficient in terms of equipment. And then there is this very simple effect that if you get all your panel of costs from construction to uh, silicon and technology, silicon and technology benefits from the very rapid deflation driven by Moore's law. So you typically get from one cycle to the next one uh, between 10x and 100x better cost efficiency on a per megabyte basis, and uh, whereas construction costs don't come down. So, so that deflation encourages you to actually reduce the share of your capex you're going to spend on equipment. So the bottom line is that 
5G spending is going to take off in the next five years, but it's going to be cyclical, and it's not going to pick above where 4G picked a few, a few years back in 2015, 2016. When you, you look at that on a long time series, you see the phenomenon very clearly. And in addition, what you see is that when CapEx shifts to the new standard, which is really happening uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, significantly next year in 2020, what you see not in CapEx but in equipment spending is that the decline of the older technology is actually more important than the increase in spending in the new technology. So you see that in this chart very clearly on slide six for the 2012 year, where 4G spending tripled, but actually 3G spending declined very significantly at the same time, and the net effect on total capex spending, on, on total equipment spending, was actually negative. So what happened in 2012? Capex budgets overall increased shifted to 4G, but in 4G projects, as it was the very early day of 4G, the share of CapEx going into equipment actually was much lower than in 3G spending that was at a much more mature stage where a higher share of CapEx goes into equipment. And this is what we expect to happen this year, uh, between this year and next, in, uh, between 2019 and 2020. We expect 5G spending to more than quadruple next year, but we also expect 4G spending to decline uh, even more so, uh, and the net effect to be mildly negative. So not a significant decline, but like a mid-single-digit decline. Our ra rationale behind that, the setup is very similar to uh, 2011 and 2012. We we've seen, like in 2019, a recovery in equipment spending driven by capacity additions in 4G networks. That's a very equipment-intensive uh, type of capex. Uh, and next year, as 5G rollouts increase in the mix, the equipment intensity of CapEx is going to decline. So next year, we expect wireless CapEx to be up globally, excluding China, uh, uh, like in, uh, in single digits. But equipment spending coming down in the mix will actually decline in, uh, in single digits. And, uh, and as a result, we, we have like a negative view on equipment spending for, for, for next year. How does like the Huawei situation uh, add to that? Well, we have like a counter, I would say, consensus view on, uh, on the situation. We think that uh, the priority that a deal is being closed uh, relatively rapidly in the next six weeks is a most likely scenario. And if that happens, of course, the situation will not have a significant impact on the industry. Then the second most likely scenario, which is that the deal takes longer to close, and we have the kind of like G20 meeting as a, as a, as a deadline on this scenario, we don't think if that happens, the industry structure is going to massively change, but like a kind of like a three months period of uncertainty hitting the industry today means that in most markets, 5G plans will be delayed simply because people will have a very hard time making decisions. Uh, if you think about Europe, uh, it's going to be very difficult for operators to decide what they do for 5G as long as they don't get clarity on what the situation with Huawei uh, evolves into. And then in the third scenario that we consider the less likely where the, the, the situation gets uh, entrenched and uh, Huawei gets sustainably banned from uh, or cut off from U.S. technology, then we first we think like what happens to telecom equipment would be a very, very little uh, element of uh, what you will be worried about. I think the, the um, uh, much worse thing will, uh, will happen in, a, in the world in, um, in that scenario. But in terms of 
how this industry uh, uh, does. I would I, I would think the world will would enter into recession and 5G would be delayed and um, and the semi like the, um, the telecom equipment industry would probably perform in line or below uh, the broader market in um, in such a scenario. Then maybe uh, one rapid consideration about stocks. Uh, so, so, so what does that mean? That basically means that today we think there is a high risk of disappointment, exactly uh, the same way uh, Ericsson negatively surprised the market at the beginning of 2012. We expect Ericsson to negatively surprise the market between now and the beginning of 2020. That doesn't make us like 5G bears or telecom equipment. On the back of that, there would be like a two, three-year cycle. It's just like uh, wise not to play it uh, one year ahead. And then, uh, of course, one uh, additional element of uh, implications in terms of, uh, of stocks that we have here, but that, that is another topic, is that uh, when you look one step below in the value chain and when you look at the uh, semiconductors and other components getting into the technology, 5G is, of course, creating a significant, uh, significant shift. So the, the, the semiconductor density of 5G equipment is higher than 4G, and there are shifts towards new technologies. So uh, our recommendation for investors to play 5G today is to play it with components and to favor names that have like a high exposition, exposure to 5G and low exposure to, um, uh, to 4G. And with that, I'm going to hand over to Chris. Yeah, thank you, Pierre. So I'm just going to address how this all plays out for the Chinese telcos and the China Tower Company. Um, but I think to answer that, you first need to understand how and why CapEx decisions are made in China. I think, you know, the market consistently underestimates how much the telcos spend on CapEx because it essentially treats the telcos as rational operators who are in charge of their own destiny. Um, but the truth is that they aren't. If China Mobile had been in charge of its own destiny, it would never have committed the, uh, the funds that it did to TDS, CDMA. It would never have invested as much as it did in 4G. Those decisions were taken because they served wider policy goals, which were deemed positive for the good of China. And I think we're, we're really in a situation that is uh, where that really has to be front and center of your mind, uh, because from the Chinese perspective, the country has entered what they're calling a long war with the U.S. for global technology supremacy. And you really have to understand, I think, how serious the situation is from the Chinese perspective. You know, as part of that war, Huawei has been placed on the entity list which you know, we think will make it very difficult for the company, if it stays there, to be at the leading edge of the technology market as long as it remains on that list. But obviously it's critical to the Chinese government that the company does succeed in its strategy, which they're calling survive and then thrive. And, and it's therefore critical that it's supported through the current phase where it's set to lose a substantial proportion of its international carry business and also its global handset business. So if you think in those terms that the country sees itself as entering a war, you know, then you see that all entities will be expected to make a contribution that clearly includes the telcos. So if you flip the slide, the second slide of mine, uh, you know, once you see things from the perspective of the Chinese government and you understand how serious it is for them, and of course that the Chinese government is not going to throw Huawei under a bus, you know, then once Huawei went onto the entity list, there really became only two outcomes that matter for the MNOs. Obviously, self-evidently, either it stays on the list or it doesn't. And we've shown on this slide the decision tree from the government's perspective for both of those scenarios. If, if it stays on the list, which you know we would see as the less likely scenario, then China's priority becomes to protect it and enable it to survive and re-emerge in a few years at the forefront of global technology. That requires the telcos to spend more with Huawei, not less. 
you know, the mechanism will likely be high unit prices with Huawei struggling to deliver equipment. We think the telcos likely just pay more for everything that Huawei can produce. And I think this is key because we are, I think, counter consensus with this. That means there's no CapEx holiday in a scenario where Huawei is struggling to deliver equipment, in our view. If it comes off the list, then China's priority becomes to move towards tech independence as quickly as possible so that they're never in a position where the U.S. can, as they would see it, hold a gun to their head in the way that they are doing today. And that implies accelerating 5G spend as well, driven by higher equipment volumes. We also think in both cases that there's a pretty good chance that telcos end up having to contribute in other ways. One good example would be a fund which uh, could be spun as a Chinese version of the Vision Fund with the aim of promoting and benefiting from 5G-related disruption and innovation. And I think in that regard, China Mobile's $50 billion of cash probably comes into play in that scenario. Of course, higher spending generally is positive for the economy, uh, which is slowing under you know, the trade tariffs and the pressure from that side as well. So, but, but our conclusion really is that this idea that Huawei struggles leads to potential capex holiday and is positive for the telcos. We, we really don't see that. We think they're in a, in a lose-lose situation. Um, on the next slide, just show the implications for China Tower and also by implication China Unicom, which we increasingly see as a proxy for the towers, given you know, that its stake in China Tower is now nearly 50% of its value. Uh, in that case, it is more of a binary outcome. Obviously, it's better for China Tower if Huawei comes off the list, as that implies accelerating volumes of 5G equipment and therefore lease up rates. And that's really why we uh, are staying positive on, on the tower space. For the MNOs, the stock most exposed is China Mobile. As I said, I think the $50 billion of cash comes into play. You know, that has the potential to be very negative if it's used in a way to support Team China, as we think it, it probably will be. You know, for, for the current situation to play out well for the telcos, you really have to believe that China is prepared to back away from its ambition to challenge the U.S. for global tech supremacy. I don't think anything that's, that I'm reading or seeing or hearing from talking to people in China suggests that that is, uh, that is the way the government is thinking. And, and so that's, as I said, why we think you know, the telcos are really in a lose-lose situation at this point. You know, they have been weak over the last two to three months, I think, as the market has been waking up to this. Um, our thesis continues to be that the 5G cycle is set to play out much more negatively than the market understands, and our key sell would be, uh, would be China Mobile. With that, I'll, uh, I'll hand back to the moderator for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. And operator, if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump in real quick here uh, and remind the audience, if you want, you can also just email me at ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com if you don't want to ask your questions on the call. I know some of you have already sent in a few questions here, and Andrew, I, I do have one for you. Just kind of broadly speaking on 5G, clearly you have a relatively skeptical view about the revenue case for 5G. And, you know, can you just kind of highlight, you know, why or what, what, what are the reasons for that? Yes, certainly. So we, we used to argue this case sort of uh, from the ground up by looking at all of the different uh, potential revenue opportunities for 5G and then explaining why we didn't really buy into them. But it's much easier now. We're just basically taking our cue from uh, the operators who are very, very lukewarm in general on those revenue cases. And if they have a revenue case, it's quite long dated. It's pushed a long way down the track and it's vaguer than it used to be. 
Uh, now, it's certainly true that some operators will be able to charge a premium for a 5G handset over a 4G handset, though that service premium will be a lot less than the, uh, probably a lot less than the incremental cost of the handset itself. But for us, that's not, that doesn't really move the needle, and we think that that, uh, that revenue step up fades away very quickly in almost all situations. Um, so hopefully that answers why we're, uh, we're bearish about the um, revenue upside from an operator perspective, at least, of, from 5G. Great. I've got a few more for you and a couple for Pierre and one for Chris as well, but I'll just check with the operator to see if there's any questions uh, from the, on the line. At this time, we don't have any questions from the queue. Okay, great. Pierre, I, I guess that Samsung, can you just kind of help us understand how that fits into all of this? They're trying to enter the market as an alternative vendor and have had some success in the U.S. Is there a chance that, you know, Huawei will be banned from Europe and, and replaced by Samsung, essentially, you know, limiting the upside for Ericsson and Nokia? Thanks. Thanks, Isan. That's, uh, that's actually a very good, um, very good question. So some background first on, uh, on Samsung. Samsung has been in the telecom equipment market now for, for decades, and um, they have a very stable model. They spend, uh, they invest and spend in that, uh, in that business like a fraction of what uh, Ericsson and Nokia and Huawei spend. Their strategy is basically to come up with a product lineup that can serve their domestic market, and their domestic market is well protected. They, they are profitable there, and they have like political support there. But that's really uh, how they build their, uh, their operation and, and think about their P&L. Uh, they do not invest capital into trying to expand their business globally. Now, what they say, what they do every year and what they do with more intensity at every standard change is to try and, in a very practical and pragmatic way, to exploit their portfolio and find opportunities outside of, uh, of Korea to play a role in the industry with no or very limited incremental investments. So they end up being like a, a, a second source supplier in the US, in, uh, in India, in multiple, multiple places in the world, but they really get these opportunities where what they have at hand can fit the bill. They, they, they don't want to invest in telecom equipment. And uh, really the feedback I've had over the years from Samsung, uh, Samsung's uh, executive, um, executive team is that They've looked at this industry. They've looked at whether it would make sense for them to become number one there. And their conclusion has always been it would cost a lot of money to become number one, and the value of being number one uh, is not great, which I, I always like to reformulate into uh, it would cost much more than the value of Ericsson to take Ericsson down, basically. And then, um, so that's like how Samsung is thinking about the market. So if Huawei gets into trouble, and if Huawei has not to be considered as an alternative supplier, it will help Samsung. But I don't think it's going to change Samsung strategy. Uh, that's what we saw in the U.S. Um, the Huawei made a, a big effort to try and get involved in the, at Sprint in the in the U.S. a few uh, a few years ago, five six years ago, and they failed. And as a result, Samsung became like um, a supplier at Sprint. But they remained always like a very small supplier. They, they didn't take like massive market share. So in a scenario in which Huawei loses ground in, uh, in Europe, you should expect Samsung to take some share. Uh, but it's going to remain small. And, and, and so it would still benefit Ericsson and Nokia in, um, in Europe. Now, at the same time, in such a scenario, what Ericsson and Nokia have left in China, which is still significant, 
would be very heavily damaged. And, and here I think what, what you have to keep in mind is that if there is like uh, about $1.5 billion of revenues for Ericsson and Nokia to win in Europe from Huawei, if Huawei goes down in Europe, there is about a similar amount of money, a bit less, to be lost uh, for the two of them in, in China as well. So that's where I see on a global basis like the woes of Huawei not being like a material net positive for Ericsson and Nokia, unfortunately. Got it. And, and I've got a number of Nokia Ericsson questions, so I'm, I'm just going to stick with that theme. But obviously, in the context of 5G, you know, potentially being delayed globally here as a result of the ban, can you just talk about the impact specifically, you know, to Nokia and Ericsson from that? I guess the, some have sort of had the view that, you know, expected 4G spending will, will pick up, you know, next year in the case of a 5G delay. Yes. So I think it's um, it's um, it, it's going to be relatively marginal. If you look at uh, globally where you we would expect 5G spending uh, to be as a share of total spending, it would be probably between 10 and 15 percent of the, the, the total uh, total market, but probably closer to 15 percent. So that's uh, the the spending that would be um, that would be at risk if 5G as such is delayed. And I think the, what you have to be careful about is thinking that if 5G is delayed, then 4G spending is going to continue. It's probably not true. If 5G is delayed, it's going to be out of uncertainty. And my experience is that when an operator is uncertain, the operator is freezing. It's not keeping going on the old playbook. Okay. So when you have a merger, when you wait for a merger approval, Operators don't keep spending in their network. They stop spending. They wait for the merger to go through. They wait for having a plan. And once they have a plan, they start spending a lot again. Okay? If they have a plan today, which is to stop investing in 4G and moving to 5G, if over the next three, four months, they feel like, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's wait. They're going to wait on both fronts. And so I would expect that 4G spending would keep going in line with what the plan is today. Uh, and 5G spending would be massively reduced. So, so, so you have like rule of thumb, like a, maybe a, about 10% of the market that would be at risk. So, so these guys could have 10% of revenue, a 10% revenue negative surprise next year if 5G is delayed. That's the rule of thumb I would use. That's great. That's helpful. And Chris, question from the field for you. How does today's uh, MIIT announcement and Unicom and Telecom's reiterated intention for 5G network sharing affect your thinking on China Tower, given your view that China likely maximizes CapEx spend on a 5G rollout? In other words, in your view, how much does this lower sort of your bull case price target of the three networks, if you could put a percentage on that? I think the big question there is to what extent, uh, you know, the MIIT is, is basically posturing around 5G and, and to what extent Huawei actually can deliver you know, equipment, uh, and and I think that's still, to a large extent, dependent on exactly what ends up happening with the entity list. So I think if if Huawei stays on the entity list, then I I do think there is a risk that you know that regardless of timing of 5G licenses, and obviously the background is that they brought that forward significantly, which you know you'd naturally think is positive for the tower code. Uh, but I, but I do think if if Huawei ends up on the entity list, then stays on the entity list then that, that is going to cause it a big problem in terms of its ability to deliver equipment. And whilst I don't think that leads to a CapEx holiday for the telcos, there is, under that scenario, a, a danger that, um, you, you know, that the acceleration 
in revenue growth that's anticipated for for the telco uh, doesn't come through. So, you know, it's, it's hard to answer your question, if I'm honest. The, the status quo, where we're at today, Huawei on the entity list, licenses having been issued earlier than we were expecting, you know, is one where China Tower probably sees some disappointment of earnings. But since we, we think China is going to do everything they can to get Huawei off the uh, off the entity list, and in response to that, they're going to accelerate 5G, and this is putting in place the the framework for that to happen. That's that's the basis on which we're uh, we're staying biased. But I think you do have to recognise that the risk around the China Tower story has increased, you know, significantly with with everything that's happening. So can we just, as a follow-up, let's assume your base case that we get an entity list removal in the next two months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So under that scenario, and given that I think the chance of uh, network sharing, 5G network sharing between Unicom and Telecom has gone down because of everything that's going on, uh, you know, then then I would see you know this sort of extreme case 5G build-out that we've written about sort of repeatedly, you know, that becomes the central case, and that, and that is a scenario which adds sort of 10 to 20% to our underlying DCS for China Tower. That's helpful. And does that, does that yeah, answer your question? Yeah. It does. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. I have a few more coming in here as well, but operator, I just want to make sure there's no questions on the line. And we do have a question from Brian Rogers with Wells Fargo. Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you, Ethan and Pierre and Chris, for doing this call and, and your insights. Appreciate it. Um, I know the call has mainly focused on the build-out of 5G and the uh, equipment companies, but I was just curious, are there any spectrum shortages or binding constraints and, and who may or may not benefit from that? Thank you. Uh, so, uh, and, Andrew here, I can probably take that one. Uh, you're thinking uh, in, in global terms uh, or, or in sp- a specific market. Global terms, yeah, just global terms, like who, who will be yeah. potentially the beneficiaries. So essentially the spectrum constraint issues are massively concentrated in the U.S. So if we look across most of Asia uh, with a couple of minor exceptions like Thailand, for example, and and I would say also uh, India, which is just chronically spectrum constrained and you know needs to be kept in uh, kept in that category. Um, but mo- most of Asia is freeing up spectrum in the in the two to four gigahertz range uh, and millimeter wave spectrum above that, uh, and is making it available quickly and cheaply to the operators. And across Europe, the, the spectrum maybe isn't as cheap, but it's it's um, being auctioned uh, on a swift basis. Uh, people are paying fa- fair prices for it. Uh, most people are getting most of what they want. And you contrast that with the U.S., where the only suitable spectrum in that range is in the hands of the weakest operator that can't really afford to exploit it. And the other allocation of spectrum in that range, which is the CBRS band, uh, is massively power constrained and is therefore very, very difficult to use uh, for wide area 5G, although we think it will play its part. It won't be the mainstream role that 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 band is playing elsewhere in the world. And then we have the C-band, which is the, the elephant in the room here, which, um, you know, there are roadmaps to that getting released. It could be very expensive, could be quite delayed. But until people know how much of that they're going to have and when they're going to get it, they're, they're really stuck, which is why we see all of this muddying of the waters around using 5G and, frankly, inappropriate spectrum bands. 
and why AT&T and Verizon are still pressing ahead with with really very, very challenging millimeter wave deployments because they really don't have uh, another plan A at the moment. So, uh, as I say, the spectrum picture is fine across most of the world and really in a mess in the U.S. Thank you very much. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one now. Hey, uh, Andrew, can I just come back to you? Uh, this is a question from the field relating to our 5G CapEx uh, forecast. Can you just articulate how uh, our U.S. and Western European forecast syncs up with the fact that our base case remains a lack of business, the lack of a, a real business case to support 5G uh, investment? So politically motivated investments make sense in China, but the rest of the world relates to public companies with capital market pressures, or said another way, without the political backdrop, would carriers be spending along the lines of what we're forecasting, ex-China? Thanks. Yes, okay, that, that's an interesting one. So in spite of the fact that the U.S. operators are public companies that need to serve their shareholders, they, they also need to be seen to be good corporate citizens in 5G, and I think any expressions of reluctance to invest or, uh, let's say, delay or just not playing that role would play extremely badly on a bipartisan, you know, bipartisan hostility would be uh, arise from that. And I think they, the operators are very, very anxious to be seen to be enthusiastic about uh, pressing on down the 5G track uh, in, in the U.S., and also, I think they're very nervous about the competitive balance. So if you had a merged T-Mobile Sprint, then they could really be off to the races with 5G very quickly, and the other two would be very nervous about uh, any perception that they'd be left behind on that. So so not all actions, even in the U.S., not all actions are simply related to maximizing shareholder value in the sense of you know, uh, garnering capex and and keeping it strictly uh, operational. There's, there's a lot of politics at play. Now, in Europe, it's a slightly different story. So, uh, operators are under exactly the same pressure in Europe to be good citizens and to be joining in the 5G, let's uh, say, so pilgrimage, put call it that way. But they have the luxury in Europe of very cheap deployment options. So, because most of them have three and a half gigahertz and, and two and a half gigahertz spectrum. Um, they're actually able to just overlay that across their existing networks, not necessarily adding much in the way of capacity or anything at all and not costing them very much either. But it really takes a lot of the heat out of the, po the political side of things if you have services announced. And we've seen that just in the last couple of weeks in the UK. Fairly de minimis service launches that really haven't cost very much have taken all of the sting out of the politics of 5G in the UK with the exception of the Huawei issue, which still festers away. But it's a very different dynamic. We don't seem to have the same level of true anxiety about um, being left behind um, because of because those service launches have happened. So that, does that answer the question, Ethan? It does. Thank you. That's, yeah. that's great. Uh, Pierre, just coming back to sort of the transition to 5G and, and where that would materialize, are there trends to be learned from former CapEx cycles, whether that was 2G, 3G, or 4G, as to where we see spending first, you know, specifically in, say, optical or switches and routers, the edge, or the core servers market, et cetera? 
Thanks, Ethan. Um, it's a it's a good question, and uh, it's one uh, one I wonder most uh, most days, and it's very difficult to um, very very difficult to answer. I don't recall in the past any uh, any significant trends uh, emerging from like the the rollout of 4G, and I think uh, at the time of 3G. Um, the level of investment in uh, in, in that type of uh, of technology related to to wireless network was really de minimis and and so you couldn't see anything so you you might have some movement have had some movement in 4G but nothing i could really uh, remember or see looking back at uh, historic data this time round when you speak to Nokia when you speak to Cisco and when you speak to Juniper there seem to be some sort of hopes that the, the 5G rollout comes along with like a modernization of, of the broader infrastructure, making making the core network uh, higher capacity, more virtualized, uh, adding new features, enabling like lower latency, uh, and things like that. But my my concern is that my only source for that is really. Um, like expectations of uh, of players with whom I have a conversation every quarter about how terrible their trends are. Uh, so, so it doesn't feel like a very strong uh, a, a very strong case. We will have to see if it really uh, if it really happens. But at this stage, it's only it's only discussed. So, no real uh, pattern we can learn from the past. Very clearly, a lot of talks about 5G being like. A trigger for like an enabler for recovery in spending in a, in fixed infrastructure, but a real risk that uh, at this stage it's only wishful thinking. That's great. And if I could just stick with you, Pierre, even in, uh, if 5G peaks at a lower level of spending versus 4G, won't the higher software and small cell mix result in higher margins and 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 hence you know better earning power for both Ericsson and Nokia? Yeah, so on higher margins, yes. I, I, you know, the the one long-term conviction I've had for this industry that margins are improving over time remains. So I would expect, like, um, uh, the when when 5G peaks, uh, that le, le industry margins will be better than where they were when 4G uh, when 4G peaked, definitely. So. Uh, that means that in two in 2023, maybe when 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 the cycle peaks, Ericsson and Nokia are going to look fairly good. I definitely do believe in that. But of course, next year, that's the exact opposite that happens, because you have a change in the mix, which is for 4G spending that is going to be very software heavy and in which you have a lot of capacity upgrades and capacity additions with. Uh, Marginal hardware addition, like adding line cards and actually software upgrades into the 5G spending that will be very heavy on antennas, on radio modules, on the chassis for, for, for new base stations, uh, and things like that. Even if a lot of base station work is going to be software upgrade, and we have a lot of kind of 5G-ready-ish base stations, um, the, the, the initial rollout of 5G is going to come through uh, with a lot of hardware. And it's also going to come through with a bit of a, a bit more competition on uh, on prices because you 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 it's always very difficult for vendors to resist the request of uh, of large operators to to get very good pricing on initial rollouts because initial rollouts have a long like multi-year value to um, to vendors of course so 
I do not model and I do not expect a collapse um, in margins uh, in 2020, but I think there will be downward pressure on margins. Given where the industry is, where the competitive landscape stands, I, I think we are like in a favorable environment, so I don't see that as a major risk uh, in the near term. And then in the, in, more in the medium term, like on the 2022-2023 horizon, uh, yes, I think um, Ericsson and Nokia are going to peak in revenues below where they peak in 15, but they will have better margins, definitely. Great, that's helpful. And uh, Chris, if I can just come back to you on, on the subject of Huawei, can you just explain why, uh, and this this idea of sort of a capex holiday for the Chinese telcos, can you just explain why if Huawei is struggling to supply equipment, and we you know we already hear talk of production lines being shuttered, et cetera, you know why why won't that lead to a capex holiday for the telcos or be a positive outcome for them? Thanks. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, I, I, and and I clearly see, you know, the logic for that, and I understand why I think a lot of people are viewing the situation in that way. But I think it really does look at things down the wrong end of the telescope, because, you know, what's happening is Huawei is losing its international carrier business, it's losing its global uh, handset business. If, at the same time, what you see is revenues in China go down, you, you know, then that's really the terminal for the company, and, and for that to happen... I think you have to see that the Chinese government is essentially walking away from uh, its ambitions around, uh, you know, the global technology industry. What I think is going to happen, and uh, I'm pretty confident of this, is that what you will find is that pressure is put on the Chinese telcos to continue to spend, or in fact, I think, increase their spending. And one of the areas where I think the market gets this wrong is that I think people assume that there's essentially a, a sort of 5G price list and that the amount that you spend is a function of the volume. So you can you know what each uh, unit costs and then you decide how much you, how many units you're going to buy and that drives your overall budget. And therefore, if the volumes go down, the overall budget goes down. And that is absolutely not how it works. How, how it works is that the price and the volume are are, are intricately linked, and therefore, if the price, if the volumes go down, the price per unit goes up, and and in fact, I think the price per unit in a situation like we're in at the moment uh, could go up disproportionate to the volume picture. So, you know, our, our view, as I said, is that you always have to look at things from the perspective of Team China. This is not a scenario that's equivalent to you know anyone that we've been in before. Huawei is is one of the vehicles by which China has ambitions to challenge the U.S. for global tech supremacy. It's absolutely mission critical for them that Huawei gets through this phase. And and therefore, it's very implausible to me that at the same time as they're seeing their international and their handset business go down the tube, uh, that the Chinese telcos also get away with, uh, with cutting back with them too. So I, I think I think it's just looking at things from the wrong perspective. And I think you know, th- this is why the market makes this mistake of consistently underestimating what the telcos are going to spend because the, the market doesn't think about these kind of broader political ambitions and political aims. Uh, it thinks about things from too narrow a perspective. Great. Very helpful. Thank you. We're actually coming 
up on the hours. I don't think I'm going to be able to get to all the questions today, but I, I did have a number of them on network virtualization, something I know both Chris and Andrew have done a lot on just as it relates to the Japanese telcos and Rakuten. I guess maybe, Andrew, the question for you would be just, you know, in the context of 5G, the role of virtualization, you know, what kind of cost savings uh, does that lead to? So as Pierre was saying earlier on, virtualization is an important part of the mix and the opportunity in 5G. Um, I think we need to reset people's expectations a little bit from some of the claims that were attached to the Rakuten pitch at, in Barcelona earlier this year, where they were they were simultaneously saying just how massively cost-competitive they would be against the Japanese incumbents in parallel with emphasizing the virtualized nature of the network. And in fact, the reasons why uh, Rakuten will, will be cost-advantaged are many-fold, and virtualization might be the sort of sexiest one on the list, but it's by no means the largest. So we see the, the impact for a, an established operator of virtualization uh, as being relatively modest. I mean, core network costs and uh, baseband costs are not a huge part of the mix. And most operators, in order to access virtualization benefits, need to invest quite a lot in their backhaul. So it, it's interesting. Maybe um, five, ten percent of the cost base going forward, but it's not. It's not easy to do. A lot of operators have been trying to do virtualization in the form of, of uh, cloud RAN for a long time. So you know, we see it as technically interesting, but not transformational for the industry. Is that given that we're close on time, is that a, a good enough answer for you? That's, that's great. I appreciate it. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we're through the hour, so that's probably a great place to wrap the call. I want to thank all our speakers, Andrew, Pierre, and Chris. I want to thank everyone for joining the call and sending in your questions and apologies for those of you, if we didn't get to all your questions, we'll be sure to follow up. And obviously, anyone who uh, has any questions uh, that did not get addressed as well, you can uh, feel free to reach out to the team. Thanks.